Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Frederick S. Fox of the law firm Kaplan, Fox, and Kilsheimer. Mr. Fox first associated with Kaplan Fox in 1984 and became a partner in the firm in 1991. For over 30 years, Mr. Fox has concentrated his practice in class action, opt-out, and other complex litigation, particularly securities, consumer, and antitrust issues. Thank you, Mr. Fox, for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our topic for this episode is special purpose acquisition companies, or so-called SPACs, and shareholder litigation. Mr. Fox, there are at least two legal issues that the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission staff have raised with respect to SPACs and the claim by some commentators that SPACs have lesser liability exposure to shareholders than traditional initial public offerings. One issue is that no underwriter is in a SPAC merger or so-called DSPAC transaction, while there is an underwriter in a traditional IPO. What's the significance of having an underwriter for shareholder liability purposes? Uh, again, thank you, Jeff. That, that is, that's a great question. So <clears throat> uh, I'll start off by explaining a little bit about underwriters. Um, in a traditional IPO, uh, underwriters serve at least two important functions. First, the underwriter will assess the market for an issuer's stock and determine a price range which it believes is appropriate for the securities at issue. And usually you'll see that expressed as a range, say, for example, 10 to $13 per share. And then on the day uh, the offering becomes effective, a final price is set based on demand and, and valuation. But secondly, and, and probably more important for our discussion today, is that in a traditional offering, the underwriters perform due diligence on the issuer. In this regard, the underwriter will closely examine the issuer's business and any projections or representations that are made by that issuer. And this is done by the underwriter reviewing documents of the issuer and, and certain uh, non-parties, and even at times conducting interviews with executives and asking the issuer to confirm various issues. So you might at that point ask, well, uh, why does a underwriter do this type of due diligence? And the answer to that lies in the liability scheme of the securities laws. So according to the Securities Act of 1933, an underwriter is liable for any material misrepresentations or omissions in a registration statement or prospectus. But importantly, the underwriter has under the same law what's called a due diligence defense. And that is, it's a defense if the underwriter in litigation, if the underwriter can show that it conducted a reasonable investigation and didn't learn of any false statement or the omission of material facts. So in short, uh, the presence of an underwriter in an IPO is considered by investors to be a good thing. It's an outside entity with inside access to the issuer who can ensure investors that what is being represented is true and fair and not materially misleading. So given that from an investor perspective, the absence of an underwriter 
in a SPAC merger transaction, I'm sorry, in a, in a, in a DSPAC transaction is what we're talking about, is a negative. It's a check and balance that's no longer there. Additionally, from a legal perspective, the absence of an underwriter is probably also a negative because if, for example, uh, there is a fraud committed uh, by the issuer and then that issuer goes bankrupt, uh, the underwriter is no longer there as a, uh, a party who could potentially uh, satisfy uh, satisfy a judgment. So I, I think that that's the importance of underwriters, uh, that they perform due diligence, and, and that's a, an, an important function, uh, I believe, that is missing from the uh, DSPAC uh, transaction. Mr. Fox, a second legal issue that the SEC staff has raised is that some commentators believe SPACs have lower legal liability because of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, or so-called PSLRA. So what is the PSLRA, and why does some claim it protects SPACs from legal liability? So um, the the PSLRA is a law that was enacted by Congress, uh, the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act. It was enacted in, uh, in 1995. And it has a number of uh, broad provisions that amended the Securities Act and the Exchange Act. Uh, some don't apply to what we're talking about today. For example, uh, it provides a, a statutory scheme for selecting a uh, lead plaintiff uh, in securities class actions. But the you know relevant part for today uh, is that the PSLRA uh, provides for what is called a, a safe harbor for forward-looking statements. And uh, what, what that is, uh, is that um, if a company issues a projection or a forward-looking statement, and it is identified as forward-looking, <clears throat> and it's accompanied by a meaningful cautionary statement, um, and it identified factors that could cause the actual results to differ materially from those uh, from the projections. Then that that is a defense uh, in in um, securities litigation, and that statement is 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 protected as long as, as I said, uh, uh, it's it's identified as a forward-looking statement. And also, an important thing is uh, as long as the um, the speaker or the issuer doesn't have actual knowledge that the statement is false. The plaintiff would have to prove to get out of the safe harbor that the, uh, the speaker knew that the statement was actually false. Um, how it applies here when we're talking about uh, the issue of, um, of DSPAC uh, transactions uh, is that this PSLRA safe harbor does not apply to statements that are made in a registration statement or prospectus in connection with an initial public offering. And that's why you don't see such projections often in initial public offerings. But this is a very hotly debated uh, topic and uh, the, situ the situation is different, many commentators say, with respect to so-called DSPAC transactions or the merger, if you will, between the SPAC 
and the company it's seeking to acquire. So here are some practitioners and commentators say that the DSPAC transaction is not an initial public offering. According to them, the initial public offering occurred when the SPAC was first created and its shares were sold to the public. So when the DSPAC occurs, it's through a proxy statement. And if there are projections involved, these commentators claim that those pro projections are protected by the PSLRA safe harbor. Since the DSPAC merger transaction is not, they say, an initial public offering. So the SEC seems to have a, um, uh, you know, a, a, it might be too far to say they have a, a position on it, but certainly um, people are talking about a, a very, very good article written by uh, John Coates. And he published an article on April 8th of this year entitled SPACs, IPOs, and Limited Liability Risk Under the Securities Laws. And I would commend uh, that article to anybody who is interested in this topic. It's a, a excellent article, which has been published by the SEC. And um, in that article, uh, Mr. Coates argues for what I think, and I agree with, is uh, that you look at the substance rather than the form uh, approach to liability, which would attach to um, projections and DSPAC transactions. So for example, uh, in the article, uh, Mr. Coates says that the DSPAC may be considered as an initial public offering, and therefore any projections would not be afforded safe harbor protection. Since that term is not defined by the PSLRA, initial public offering, and as a matter of substance, the DSPAC has features that really do resemble an IPO. And so, for example, it's the first time the acquired company, which was normally previously private, is disclosing detailed information to investors. And in that sense, uh, Mr. Coates argues that in substance, it is very similar to uh, an IPO and therefore consideration really should be given to whether the, the safe harbor applies to that. That seems a, a little convoluted, but that, that is the heart of, of that argument as to why uh, DSPAC transactions and projections, uh, some say uh, those projections are protected by the safe harbor. So Mr. Fox, I'm aware of at least two uh, different current forms of shareholder litigation against SPACs. One form of litigation is a derivative lawsuit filed by a shareholder claiming, among other issues, that the SPAC is an unregistered investment company as defined in the Investment Company Act of 1940. A number of corporate law firms have suggested this form of litigation has no merit. Can you explain the basis for this form of litigation and its likelihood of success? I, I, I can. And um, I think the case that you're talking about um, there is the uh, Assad v. Pershing Square Tontine Holdings case, which is uh, a very recent case filed, I believe, in August in the uh, district court, uh, federal district court in Manhattan. And it is very early in the case. Uh, but in that action, the plaintiff alleged that uh, uh, Tontine, that's the SPAC, 
should be required to register as an investment company under the 1940 Investment Company Act because plaintiffs allege the primary business of Tontine was investing. And if required to uh, register, it would mean that certain restrictions, including restrictions on fees, would apply. Uh, now, this case is noteworthy because if Tontine is required to register, then theoretically, many and possibly all SPACs could be required to register under the 1940 Investment Company Act. Uh, and, and that's because in virtually all SPACs, prior to completing the merger with an operating company, invest the proceeds of the public offering in treasuries or some other investment which is held in a trust. Case is also noteworthy because it features high-profile names in the world of investing on each side. A hedge fund billionaire Bill Ackman's Pershing Square as the uh, Tontine sponsor. And uh, on the plaintiff side is Robert Jackson, a former SEC commissioner, and John Morley, a Yale law professor. And they're involved in the lawsuit and advocating uh, for registration. Defendants, I believe, will argue two things. Uh, first, they'll say that a SPAC's primary business is not investing the funds raised in the IPO and they're not in the primary business of investing. Instead, they will argue that the primary business of the SPAC is to find an operating company to merge with in the time specified by the SPAC and that the funds raised in the IPO are only invested in, in, in connection with having those funds available when a merger candidate is found. Second, I would expect defendants will argue that the SEC has permitted SPACs to operate in this way without requiring registration uh, in the past. On the other hand, uh, the plaintiffs allege that Ackman SPAC has only ever invested in securities and therefore should be regulated under the act. And as I said, the regulations, if, if required to register, it would entail limits on various things, including fees. So I think with this, with this case, it is too early to tell what's going to happen here. Uh, and it may be that any rulings issued by the court will be limited on the facts to this particular SPAC. And I think we're just going to have to wait and see how this develops a little more. Mr. Fox, a second form of SPAC litigation I've recently seen is a class action lawsuit by current and former shareholders of SPAC claiming breach of fiduciary duties against the directors and sponsors for approving uh, the, a merger or the so-called DSPAC transaction. And the DSPAC transaction is alleged to have provided an undisclosed financial windfall for the directors and sponsors of the SPAC at the expense of the public shareholders whose shares declined in value following the merger. So can you explain this form of litigation and whether it may have some sure. merit? Sure. And, and so, uh, so I, I think what we see here is more traditional forms of litigation, either for breach of fiduciary duty uh, and claims that are brought in places like Delaware Chancery Court for breach of fiduciary duty for uh, improper windfalls in terms of fees and the like. 
And then additionally, uh, you know, we see um, federal court securities class actions under the PSLRA uh, brought on behalf of uh, classes of investors alleging that either in the initial offering of the SPAC or more commonly now in the D-SPAC that defendants made false and misleading statements um, about uh, the company that was uh, uh, being merged with, the operating company. And so one example of this that comes to mind uh, is a, a case that uh, was recently filed and it's called um, Burbridge versus ATI Physical Therapy. Uh, and that's a class action filed on behalf of people who purchased shares of ATI, which is the public company after uh, after the merger. And, um, you know, there, uh, the AT ATI is an outpatient physical therapy company that was quite large, owned 900 physical therapy clinics in 25 states. And the merger occurred on June 17th, the, the uh, uh, SPAC sponsor was a, a Fortis entity. The merger occurred on June 17th, 2021, and ATI became a publicly traded company. Middle of June now, on June 26, 2021, before the market opened, ATI announced some bad news when it reported its financial results for the second quarter uh, as a, a, you know, a public company. And it stated that because of the acceleration uh, of attrition of therapists, it was losing its physical therapists that it was able to retain and hire in the second quarter. Because of that, uh, combined with increasing competition in the labor markets, uh, uh, it prevented the company from meeting uh, the demand it had uh, for physical therapy. And because of all that, uh, uh, they were lowering their 2021 forecasts. And uh, we saw that on that news, the stock dropped more than 40% uh, in, in very heavy trading volume. Uh, shortly thereafter, plaintiffs brought suit alleging defendants to fail to disclose to investors uh, that uh, ATI was experiencing this attrition among its physical therapists during the, during the class period. And so, so I, I point this case out because uh, while it concerns a SPAC, uh, the case features many of the same types of claims that are typically found in investor class claims. Here are the allegations of failure to disclose material adverse facts about the company, which defendants allegedly knew even prior to the DSPAC. So this would be very similar to types of claims one would see, for example, in any in a merger any merger transaction, where the allegations are that the proxy statement issued in connection with the merger failed to disclose material facts about one of the parties to the merger. So um, I guess the point I want to highlight here is that while SPAC transactions and DSPAC transactions are somewhat of a different form. In many ways, the legal claims they give rise to under the securities laws are very similar. And I think this is also a related point that uh, 
that Mr. Coates makes in, 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 in his article. Mr. Fox, final question. What steps should SPACs and their directors and sponsors take to reduce the risk of shareholder litigation? That's a really good, excellent question. Um, and the first thing I would say uh, is that the directors, the sponsors um, should not rely on the notion that projections made in a DSPAC will be accorded safe harbor treatment. They may be, they may not be. And while there's definitely some arguments as to why such statements would have safe harbor protection, as we discussed earlier, I think the issue is far from settled. And the better view is that an analysis of the substance of the DSPAC probably supports the notion that the DSPAC is much more like an IPO. And it is too early then to, if, if that's the case, to rely legally on the idea that the safe harbor will apply. I think this is especially true uh, with the absence of an underwriter performing, a due, performing due diligence in a DSPAC. So that would be point number one is um, it's okay to make projections, make sure I wouldn't legally rely on the idea that those projections will definitely be afforded safe harbor protection, safe harbor protection under the PSLRA. Finally, obviously, any projections made should be double and triple checked to make sure they have a reasonable basis and are not simply the most rosy projections uh, that are in the possession of, of the company. Finally, of course, any projection should be identified as forward-looking and accompanied by, accompanied by meaningful cautionary statements. But make sure that the things you are cautioning about have not already come to pass. If they have, the cautionary language under the law will likely do you no good, and in fact, may be alleged to be another false statement. So a company, any projections, by meaningful cautionary statements and just make sure to avoid litigation and to make sure uh, that those things that you're cautioning about have not already happened. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guest, Frederick S. Fox of the law firm Kaplan Fox. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff. J-E-F-F at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.